you think about that with the carry trade, situations where you're losing money, where you're forced to reduce risk, that's happening in a world where volatility is spiking. So in a world where basically everyone is trying to reduce risk. So the cost of, of kind of managing your leverage in that world can be quite high. That's the unique part of it is that the drawdowns happen at really bad times, really expensive times to have to close your positions and and things can get away from you, I think, especially fast. Whereas you might have drawdowns at times where you know other people are not drawing down and therefore it may be easier for you to, to kind of manage the, the leverage in that, in that sort of situation. You're not having everyone looking to reduce risk at the same time. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today Robert Calvin and I are joined by Kevin Coldiron, who is a co-author of the book, The Rise of Kerry, uh, which we'll be diving into today. But first off, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. We have very much been looking forward to uh, our conversation. How are you doing? How are things where you are this morning? Uh, well, you know, I'm. I think the world's a little uh, very unsettled, but um, I'm sitting here in California. It's a nice sunny day, so uh, relatively speaking, doing well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, before we dive into all the the juicy topics that we're going to uh, discuss, I would like to set the stage for our conversation, partly so that the audience uh, knows a bit more about your background, and okay. also if you're able to. Perhaps a kind of a brief introductions of your two co-authors, Tim and Jamie Lee, just so we can all kind of frame the conversation and put the book into a, a better perspective. Okay. Uh, well, personal background, I started work initially at the New York Federal Reserve back in the days when the U.S. actually tried to control the value of the, of the dollar by intervening in the foreign exchange markets. I, I okay. worked as an analyst on the foreign exchange desk there in New York, so... Um, I got to see kind of firsthand the power and influence of central banks early on in my career. Um, I ended up doing a um, MBA at London Business School um, after that, and then got into the world of um, quantitative finance. I worked uh, for what became eventually became BGI um, Barclays in London, and started off in the quantitative research team, kind of building models to take positions in markets, and then eventually moved over and set up a hedge fund business. My, my insight was, hey, we've got all these great models. We're just using them at the moment to take long positions, but actually there's a lot of power on the short side. Let's set up a hedge fund to, to exploit that. And um, I ran that business in London in the late 1990s and then realized, hey, you know, <laughs> I'd be better off doing this on my own. And uh, I, I moved to San Francisco and partnered with uh, Peter Algert, who was the head of um, U.S. equity research at BGI at the time. And so we started a um, hedge fund business in 2002, Algert Cold Iron Investors. Our strategy was you know, long, short, quantitative um, equities. So we traded kind of all markets around the world, um, uh, developed an emerging and we were using quantitative models, but um, kind of longer term quantitative models on the, you know, holding periods on the order of kind of six to, you know, 12, 15 months. So not high frequency in and out type of things, really trying to systematize the, the insights of fundamental analysts. So a lot of the inputs into our modeling was um, accounting data, but we also, uh, we also use some kind of volume and price uh, stuff, but uh, 
I did that until uh, 2014, and then I ended up selling my stake in the business uh, back to Peter. And since then, I've been teaching at uh, Berkeley, uh, the, the business school in Berkeley, and they have a master's in financial engineering program. Basically, the students are, you know, very highly skilled in the quant, you know, kind of quant space. A lot of them have advanced degrees in math and computer science, et cetera. And then they use the program as a tool for uh, getting into finance. So I teach a course on um, asset management in that program. Very exciting. Must be fun for them to actually have someone teaching them that's done it as a practitioner. And of course, I'm spoiled today because I have two authors with me who are both practitioners, which is, you know, not that often you see people uh, write about stuff they've actually done in practice. So uh, I'm thrilled about that. In terms of your co-authors of the book, Tim and Jamie Lee, do you want to give a little bit of their background, uh, Kevin, just so our audience know what yeah. their background might be or angle? Yeah, happy to do that. And um, it, Tim and Jamie are related. Uh, Jamie's Tim's uh, son. And uh, Tim, I met uh, many years ago. He was actually he ran a consultancy called Pi Economics. So t Tim's a macroeconomist, and um, he uh, we were a client of his. So he had a he had a consulting firm where he would write on uh, strategy and markets. And most of his clients were big macro type. Uh, traders and we weren't that at all but i really liked his um the way he viewed markets and so we tried to kind of take his macro view and embed that in not so much in our alpha forecast but in how we managed and calibrated risk in the portfolio um so he tim um, had been writing about the importance of carry trades I think before anyone else, he was really talking about the influence of the yen carry trade back in 2005 and six, and, um, you know, identifying that really we had entered this carry regime well before we even had that term. Right. And so when I left the, um, when I left my firm in 2014, I kind of called up Tim and said, Hey, you know, I really think all the stuff about carry you've been writing would make a great book. Uh, and he said, well, as it turns out, I've already got kind of an outline and a plan to write one with my son, Jamie, who I hadn't met before. But Jamie um, is a volatility trader. So he's, you know, in some mm -hmm. sense, Tim's got the big macro picture. J Jamie was is actually kind of managed and traded in the, you know, in the volatility markets and um, now works um, for uh, Jeremy Grantham, the GMO founder. And, um, in a personal capacity, works for his uh, foundation, so he helps kind of on the asset allocation side, and then manages the sleeve of uh, of money for him trading volatility. So it's it's a nice combination because you've got Jamie who really understands the guts, of the the microstructure. Um, Tim is a macroeconomist, and then I kind of fit in the middle, and and you know we talk uh, quite a lot in the book about institutional incentives to engage in carry trades and i kind of have seen that firsthand from my you know perch as a as a hedge fund manager for a long time so uh that's the that's the three of us yeah no the great background and and great uh, to have three kind of different people come together and write one book so let's talk about the book let's dive and in i should, I should um, just say yeah. niels that to, to be clear of the three uh i'm the the least um uh, intelligent of the three so uh just to, to set expectations in terms of... You I know, thought you, it was... Niels, we've got the wrong guy on the podcast. Were, were, the, thought, were the other two not available? <laughs> I thought the British were the humble one, right? But here we have an American just saying, you know, no, exactly. Well, there yeah, we he are. He worked in London for too long, that's why. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Rob, why don't you take the lead on diving into this book, The Rise of Carrie, which, by the way, I highly recommend that all our listeners should get and, and uh, read for themselves of course. Uh, definitely. Uh, I found it a very interesting book as well. And uh, I've got a not dissimilar background. I've done a bit of volatility trading myself. Uh, obviously worked in systematic hedge funds. And, and a long time ago, I learned some macroeconomics, which I've unfortunately mostly forgotten. So <laughs> uh, my, my questioning on the macro won't be perhaps that incisive. But, but let, let's start with the absolute basics. Let's start with the definition of, of, of the term carry and, and carry trade. Um, and, um, you know, we're, so we're both in the education business as well. So whenever I try and teach my students about this, I, I generally start with FX carry because I think that's 
the the one that's easiest to get your head around. So do you want to do you want to kind of explain to us the the sort of setup and perhaps the the characteristics of an FX carry trade? Yeah, absolutely. So it you know conceptually carry trades we think of as you know we talk about this in the book as a trade that makes money when nothing happens right so what does that mean it means that let's say in the fx world if you uh borrow money in a low interest rate currency which is you know let's let's call it the yen or the the dollar and then um use that convert it to a high interest rate currency let's call it the turkish lira so you borrow at zero percent and you you convert it to another currency and you deposit it in a bank um and you earn ten percent um, if nothing happens, right, if the world stays the same, if the exchange rate doesn't move, then you're making that 10% yield spread, right? So that's that yield spread, that that income that accrues to you, if nothing happens, is the carry. Um, so that's the basic setup. Now, that trade has certain uh, very important characteristics. Um, one is it is short volatility, Um which is basically another kind of a fancier way of saying you make money if nothing happens. So if the world stays the same, doesn't move, volatility is very low. If, on the other hand, things change, volatility emerges, then the probability of you losing money starts to, uh, starts to grow. And typically, these trades involve money flowing from kind of a low-risk environment to a high-risk environment, so when volatility rises, typically the high-risk um, currency or asset tends to depreciate. So that that trade is short volatility in times where volatility spikes, carry trades lose money. Um, our definition is that carry trades are always involved leverage, so it always involves borrowing. So a you know a just a long position unlevered in say a high dividend yield. A portfolio would not be a carry trade, even though that makes money when nothing happens. You earn the the dividend yield, but um, our definition is that carry trades are always involved leverage. Um, they're liquidity providing, so in other words, money is flowing where liquidity and capital is abundant to where liquidity and capital are needed. So there's a lot of capital and liquidity in Switzerland or Japan. You borrow there, you invest in Turkey where interest rates are higher, there's a need for capital. So as carry is growing, market liquidity rises, becomes easier to trade and easier to borrow. And then the last feature of a carry trade um, is that it's got what we call kind of a sawtooth return pattern. In other words, long periods of positive returns punctuated by occasional large drawdowns. So in the currency example, the exchange rate between, let's say, the yen and the Turkish lira is mostly stable. Indeed, as carry trades grow, it might even the lira might even appreciate as money flows in. Um, but Turkey is a, is a risky place. And when volatility emerges, you can get a sudden flight out, and so you get a steep drawdown. So you get these kind of patterns of, you know, people call it escalator up, elevator down, Right. Um, and that elevator down emerges um, typically at, you know, in at times of crisis. So it carries a risk that is in some sense hard to diversify because it's emerging when you know, everything is going bad. Yeah, there's quite a lot I'd like to unpick from that answer, definitely. Um, I, I guess the first thing to say is that the, the sawtooth return pattern, another way of describing that is like negative skew effectively, isn't it? Correct, yes. Yeah. So the, the other thing that's kind of interesting to me is um, with the, the one things we talk about a lot on our podcasts um, is the difference between volatility and risk. And I think in a lot of financial markets contexts, um, risk is kind of thought of in a symmetric fashion. So, you know, the classic way of measuring risk is with a standard deviation, which, of course, is a symmetric measure of, of a distribution in which, you know, a high upside is seen as, as bad as a high downside. But in, in that FX carry example, you know, a high upside on the trade obviously isn't a problem, right? It would it would be great if the the lira appreciated by a surprising amount. You absolutely love that, um, but but generally the risks are actually skewed to the downside. You know, the risk. You know, when the world gets more volatile, the Turkish lira doesn't. You're right, does not tend to appreciate versus the yen. So that that that's kind of um, you know, although theoretically you could argue that the FX carry trades not is that not necessarily kind of short risk in the general sense because some risks are good for it but in, in a realistic world 
you know, it's it's kind of a short vol trade, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So so maybe we could talk about a slightly different um, example of carry trade then, which is kind of more pure kind of short vol. And that would literally be something like, um, you know, selling VIX futures or, um, you know, paying variant swaps or, you know, shorting straddles in the options market that, you know, that, that kind of carry trade. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you short VIX futures, um, you know, as you said, that is, you are literally selling volatility or selling applied volatility. Um, and so that's a, um, that that's a carry trade in the sense that if you, the typical shape of the VIX futures curve is, is upward sloping, right? So the, you know, one month forward volatility typically sits above spot volatility, um, and so on. So you have this term structure of volatility that's typically upward sloping um so a you know way to uh, you know, a kind of a carry trade in that world would be shorting vix futures and then just kind of rolling down the curve right so if you short a four-month vix future in four months it becomes spot vix spot vix trades below uh, four-month forward volatility so there's a you know that roll the the return you get for rolling down that curve is the carry, right? If the world stays the same, if nothing changes, if the shape of the VIX term structure stays the same, then you make money rolling down the curve. And of course, you lose money if um, short-term volatility spikes. So if you were trying, if you're doing putting that trade on a month ago, you'd be losing money right now because the, <laughs> you know, the VIX has spiked. And the, yeah, uh, the you're talking to not- somebody who did have that trade on last month. <laughs> <laughs> And it is now closed. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, and the thing is, it, it may have been closed voluntarily or it may have been closed forcibly. And that's the thing. Um, it, if you're, you know, in a leveraged position that's short volatility, um, then you, you know, you you lose control of your future because if, you know, if you lose money, you get stopped out or you're forced to close your position. And that can kind of reinforce the movements in the short term, kind of vicious leverage cycle that that uh, I'm sure your listeners are all familiar with. So yeah, that's kind of a pure volatility um, carry trade. I think it's quite interesting. And we try, <laughs> we try to explain this in the book. My, my son read the book and he said, you know, some of these charts, dad, no one's, no one's ever going to understand. And one of those happened to be one that I developed, which was trying to show that if you looked kind of when we started our careers back in the the 80s and and 90s at the returns to a currency carry trade strategy um that they were pretty orthogonal to kind of the general movement and volatility globally um but in the last 20 to 30 years the returns to a currency carry trade have been highly correlated with the sort of volatility carry trade that we just talked about in other words the, these carry trades, the kind of risk factor has kind of merged in, I think, into kind of a single global risk, which is really centered on the S&P 500 and the VIX. So a lot of carry trades are short vol, and that vol is really represented now by by the VIX, I think. Yeah, and we really saw that in 2008, right? Because, you know, there are all these, you know, where I used to work, we had a, f- a fund of hedge funds business, and there are all these hedge fund styles that were supposedly uncorrelated. And you know, when the metaphorical tide went out, it turned out there was an awful lot of, of those guys who, you know, weren't wearing bathing bathing suits as, as the, the metaphor goes. And actually, they had a lot of their returns under the hood were basically carry related. So the correlation was much higher than you thought it was. Precisely. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's tough as a hedge fund manager. I've seen that myself and you have in your career that, and we talk about this in the book, the, the incentive structures of a lot of the asset management world, hedge funds in particular, make it very challenging to have a, a negative carry trade. You're incentivized to have positive carry because with positive carry, you make money most of the time, right? So, you know, <laughs> you can show your boss your P&L is positive. Um, you know, if you make money four out of five years, you collect a bonus four out of five years. Your firm collects an incentive fee four out of five years. And then, you know, when you have the drawdown, when do the drawdowns happen? They happen during times of generic spikes in volatility where you can say, well, that was out of my control. Like everyone's losing money. It's not me. Don't fire me. Nothing I could do. So, you know, 
it, it's it's tough. Those incentives matter. Those agency issues are very important, and so it's not surprising that professionals have have uh, migrated toward trades with that kind of carry profile, given the way that they're paid. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know Niels and I are more on the momentum end of the spectrum, which is you know a bit more like a, a positive skewed strategy, which means you have the exact opposite experience. You spend much of your time explaining to clients why you're in a drawdown and <laughs> hoping they'll hold on for the you know the period when the one year in five or whatever it is when you actually make money. So absolutely, um, let's um, just kind of dig in a bit more about. So I can understand that any leveraged trading strategy is inherently more dangerous than any unleveraged trading strategy, right? Because you, you've always got the the danger that you're going to have be forced to stop out, close your positions when you when you don't want to. Um, and uh, you know, everyone always says that, oh, if only I'd been allowed to hang on for a bit longer. Then, <laughs> you know, I'm sure the LTCM guys were saying that right back in back in 1998. If only I'd been able to hold on for a little bit longer, I would have, I would, it would have all come back, right? Um, but what is it about the, you know, because obviously you can run any number of strategies in a leverage way and, you know, we're, we're, we're futures traders here. So we're always using leverage, right? We've got no choice. We're inherently using leverage. Um, but what, what's uniquely different about the leverage in the carry trading strategy that makes it more, more toxic, do you think? Well, I guess I would turn it back to what the underlying economic risk in a carry trade is, which is short volatility. So you have a levered position. The key risk factor is what happens to volatility. Um, so in a levered position, as you said, you have you run the risk of being forced to close out, and that means trading, um, regardless of impact, um, you, you have no choice. So if you think about that with a carry trade, situations where you're losing money, where you're forced to reduce risk, that's happening in a world where volatility is spiking. So in a world where basically everyone is trying to reduce risk. So the cost of, of kind of managing your leverage in that world can be quite high. That's the unique part of it is that the drawdowns happen at really bad times, really expensive times to have to close your positions and, and things can get away from you, I think, especially fast. Whereas you might have drawdowns at times where you know, other people are not drawing down, and therefore it may be easier for you to, to kind of manage the the leverage in that in that sort of situation. You're not having everyone looking to reduce risk at the same time. Maybe that's the the benefit of mostly being in a drawdown all the time. Actually, as a trend <laughs> follower, probably the only benefit I can think of right now. But I do want to pick up on on this point because I think it's important. You know, what why would that why would this risk be different or more toxic? I think that's a great question, and I. I wanted to ask you this, Kevin, that is, so volatility obviously plays a key role in releasing the risk of the carry trade, let's call it that. And if we go back in history, I would argue that volatility just used to be a measure. We just used it as a measure, we looked at it and it was a measure. But now volatility is in all of our models, it's in all of our parameters, it's a key component. So when it does change dramatically, it seems like it hurts a lot more people or there's a lot more people who suddenly have to react uh, at the same time. So I wanted to hear your thoughts about this transition of of just the term volatility and the role it plays in in investing and maybe sort of your thoughts on whether it's that transition that makes it or increases the toxicity of of the carry trade. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and it almost kind of edges into philosophy at some stage, right? Because there's the first moment of returns, which is, or the first moment, which is kind of the mean, and then volatility is supposed to be kind of a, a function of how the return evolves. But as people trade volatility itself as a as an asset or an instrument you could argue that that kind of in, you know, the tail kind of wags the dog in some sense right like or a parameter kevin i would say and and an, or a parameter right where it it triggers us to change position first certainly in our world right where where we everything is kind of position sized according to volatility 
Exactly right. So you let's you know kind of walk that logic through a little bit and think about say maybe a risk parity type of strategy where, um, you know where positions are scaled according to some measure of typically historical volatility, but you know maybe in your world it's forward looking volatility. Either way, those those two things are fairly correlated. So if you know whatever measure of volatility you're using changes, your model changes, you use that to then scale your positions up or down, which in turn, if enough people are doing that, actually impacts the historical evolution of the return, which then feeds back into your measure of volatility. So I do think you're absolutely right that that's a change probably that we're only seen, I'd say, in the last, you know, maybe 10 years in scale. Um, Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, returns, I think, now are at least in part driven by this kind of volatility sizing uh, behavior by traders um, and by long-term investors. So um, it's, no, it's no longer just kind of this independent output. It's part of the, part of the system. Yeah. Rob, I'll let you continue. Yeah, I was, I, I was also thinking that maybe Carrie's got something in common with, with similar type strategies in things like, say, um, you know, equity long short, um, where when, you know, you have an effect over time where the trade gets crowded, more people get into it, and the edge in the trade gets reduced. So I guess if you think about, say, piling into an emerging market currency has got a high yield, the currency might appreciate, but at the same time, it's quite likely the interest rate differential rate ratio will narrow, right? Because, you know, there's going to be a, a massive demand for bonds issued by, say, Turkey, and therefore the price is going to rise, and therefore the yields are going to fall, and the actual interest rate differential will reduce. Um, so I, I kind of have this mental image of lots of people kind of getting into this crowded theatre, and the marginal person coming in having to pay more and more for their ticket, right? But they're still going in. This this is the the thing that that's that's quite remarkable that people still pile into these trades. Um, you know, again, we can go back to two thousand and seven, where people were still piling into trades where, you know, they were selling protection on credit, say for basis points. You know, for, for almost no premium at all because heck, it was it was completely safe, right? And it could couldn't possibly go down in price. So I wonder if that that's another kind of characteristic of of the carry trading strategy that makes it inherently more risky that it it's more likely to be quote unquote crowded than other trades is that what you're saying or i just want to make sure i understand your yeah no i, I think it's more about the relationship between the well so okay so whenever we see a sawtooth pattern of returns that's probably due to a pattern of people going into a trade the trade getting crowded and then if anything goes even slightly wrong and because of the effect of leverage you know the rush for the exits is much bigger than it would be if A, the trade wasn't crowded and B, there wasn't leverage on to begin with. Um, but the, then I guess the other thing that's going on is that the the sort of returns available from the trade are getting smaller as more and more people pile into the trade. Um, I got you. So the marginal, yeah. the, the marginal um, investor, the one who is going to lose money first is also the one who's come in, you know, when the yield spread, the carry is, is most narrow kind of at the end. And maybe that's actually what makes hmm. the trade more susceptible to a breakpoint, right? Because you've got a whole bunch of people who just come into this trade who've, who are earning almost nothing. So it doesn't take much of an adverse movement for them to, to start losing money and having to cut their positions. Whereas the guy who has been in there for three years and has been earning a, a yield spread of 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10% is still okay with it. Now, that's, I, I think that's a great point. Um, and that, that, you know, People have talked about the kind of all it takes one grain of sand in a, in a you know in an unstable pile to get the cascade going. So um, you know that I think you're right on that. Um, I hadn't actually thought about it in those terms, but uh, the marginal investor has far less uh, room for error in the carry trade than uh, maybe in other trades. And given the, those underlying leverage, that adds to the fragility. I think that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's quite neatly brings me actually onto the next thing I want to discuss, which was. For me, as a former sell-side vol trader, so basically a market maker in the volatility markets uh, in interest rates, for what it's worth. And one of the sections in your book I found really interesting and I've honestly never seen before was this analysis of the kind of feedback effects of of people trading options, you know, obviously selling options to earn carry, to earn option premiums effectively. 
and the effect that has on the the actual level of volatility because you you use this you know your subtitle of your book is um the dangerous consequences of volatility suppression uh and the new financial order of decaying growth and recurring crisis but so that this idea of of the the carry trade actually you know suppressing volatility um through the kind of interactions of market participants is something i found you know really interesting so Perhaps you could. I've not explained it very well. I'm hoping you can explain it a bit better. No, it's interesting. As you were saying that, I, I actually was starting to think about your previous question. I think the two are are linked. So, you know, um, selling volatility, you know, is a carry trade. You know, if you think about, you know, the kind of crudest way to, you know, if you're just selling a um, selling an option unhedged, it's a bet on you know, the implied volatility in the options price being um, higher than ultimately the realized volatility. Um, so that's a, you know, that's a, that's just short volatility trade. You can, um, you can, tip, you can delta hedge that um, as well and um, kind of transfer some of that volatility risk to the, the counterparty, the delta hedging counterparty. Um, but either way, if you think about what's happening as more people come into that trade where they sell volatility, what effect will that have on the levels of volatility? It will push them down just like anything else, right? So um, if you think through that process, the kind of marginal person who enters that volatility selling carry trade will be coming in at a you know a very low level of, of volatility, volatility getting pushed down. That's what we mean by volatility suppression, the growth of carry trades has a tendency to push the level of volatility down, but then it also increases fragility when you have a spike in volatility, then the margin for error in that marginal trader, as you just said, is a lot less and you can get the, the process reversing. What we talk about um, in the book, I'm kind of jumping a little bit, is if you think about what the central banks have done over the years in intervening to stabilized markets. Well, what happens when central banks intervene? The, the focus is always on interest rates and, and QE, but at a macro level, the big impact is that it stabilizes volatility. And oftentimes volatility comes down quite dramatically after central bank intervention is announced. So that has the effect of, you know, kind of truncating losses for carry traders, right? If carry is short volatility, volatility spikes during a crisis, that's very bad for carry traders. Fed intervention has the impact of capping that volatility and pushing it back down. Um, and indeed, the expectation that the Fed is going to intervene keeps volatility at low levels generally. So central bank intervention has helped truncate losses for, for carry traders in a crisis, which in turn makes carry trades look more profitable because we never observe the full left-hand tail of that distribution, right? So it's like when you're calibrating, you know, how much, uh, you know, do I want to do this trade? How much risk should I put in this trade? How correlated is it with other things? You're doing that based on a distribution that's been influenced by the suppression of volatility from central banks, which encourages more people to do the carry trade, which in turn creates more so if you're kinetic energy for volatility in future crisis, more potential for it to spike, which require necessitates bigger interventions and you have this kind of ratchet process through time. It's funny to uh, sort of sit here and listen to you and talk about these things and especially the kind of the currency carry trades, which are really the first ones that I can remember. And it was incredibly popular in Denmark back in the 80s and early 90s. I mean, it's just one of those things. And, and, and another thing that people did a lot of back then was just selling straddles, so especially on the FTSE. I don't know why, but just I remember these firms popping up uh, with these incredibly, um, you know, um, f looked amazing stable tracks records right and then every two or three years they would just completely blow up and 
And, uh, you know, and I certainly remember also early on in, in my career, having been involved in, in just sort of sitting there and selling straddles on the German Bund, hoping that it would more or less stay stable, which of course it did for the most of the time. But when it didn't, it was pretty nerve wracking. But I want to, um, well, first of all, you're an old school uh, carry trader. Then. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> and now completely in the other camp, right? You know, I don't, I don't like, uh, it's like they say there are no, there are old traders and there are bold traders, but there are no old bold traders. So yeah. Niels used to be bold, but now he's old. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely went from from the convergent to the divergent side of, uh, of investing, that's for sure. Um, and, and it's also funny, actually, in the sense that um, I think we've had Maybe, I don't know if that's you can say that, but certainly one of the ultimate carry traders we've actually had on the podcast, because a name that might be familiar to you, uh, Kevin, that's Nick Leeson. He, uh, oh, of course. he was on the podcast, and of course he, um, you know... For various reasons, in a sense, probably not not that he planned, but he really did become the ultimate uh, carry trader selling all his straddles on the Nikkei back in the 90s, I think it was. But I wanted to go somewhere slightly different, although it could involve the central banks, as you kind of uh, alluded to also. But I wanted to ask what your thoughts are in terms of the role that carry trades may play in financial bubbles. Um, how do you see, are there any relationship? Do they create the bubbles? Do they make them bigger? Or how do you see that? We talk about the world entering what we call the carry regime. The carry regime is a world where carry trades aren't just done in foreign currency markets, but they grow. They, they, they're done in the options markets. They're done... You know, you could, we think of private equity as essentially being a carry trade, buy-to-let property being a carry trade. So they're, they're, we see them everywhere. And what that means is that, if, again, going back to the characteristics of a carry trade, what are they? They're leveraged trades that provide liquidity. So in a world where carry trades are expanding and growing, Debt is growing, right? Leverage is growing, and um, so is liquidity. So in some sense, as that world expands, if you will, the bubble, um, so the short answer to your question is yes, I do think they're, they're involved in financial bubbles, and I'm trying to kind of describe how we see the mechanism. So in that world where the bubble or the carry regime is expanding, initially that looks like a pretty good world, right? Because um, liquidity is enhanced, and by liquidity, I mean the ability both to access capital, so to borrow, um, and also to transact in financial markets. So both those things are improving, um, and the world looks good. Um, at the same time, it's increasing levels of debt, which is putting downward pressure on um, interest rates and inflation. And it creates this illusion that certain financial assets are almost as good as cash, like money substitutes. So you have a world where inflation, it's kind of a deflationary world, low interest rates, people you know, aren't very attracted to holding cash because it yields nothing. But financial markets are very liquid and easy to trade. And so they substitute cash holdings for holdings in financial assets, and here I'm thinking of money market funds or corporate bond ETFs, a variety of things that, because they seem very liquid and they offer higher yield, are good money substitutes. But remember, all this carry trading is short volatility. So when volatility spikes, carry trades lose money, risk emerges, and people no longer, <laughs> vol you know, people no longer are happy to hold those money substitutes. They no longer see corporate bond ETFs as a money substitute. They no longer see money market funds. They just want treasuries or they want bank deposits. And so that you get a kind of a flood out of these money substitutes back into true cash. And I so I basically see that carry as helping kind of accelerate financial bubbles through this creation of or helping grow leverage and liquidity, but then also making the contraction of the bubbles more severe through this mechanism of, you know, flooding out of money substitutes when liquidity um, disappears. 
So I, I, another long answer to a, <laughs> a question, but uh, it's quite important actually um, that that this mechanism, because like, I think I really think that's what we've experienced um, in the last uh, thirty years ago. And twenty twenty was, you know, quite a uh, clear example of that, where all of a sudden, you know, uh, no one wanted to hold you know, money market funds or short-term bond ETFs. And I think that's why it was absolutely critical that the Fed, critical in the sense of it showed just how important this money substitute effect is when the Fed said they were going to buy corporate bonds because they understood those things were being packaged as basically money substitutes. And and if, if they didn't underpin that market, there was just going to be, you know, it, it kind of... Uh, Meltdown. There, there wasn't going to be yeah. enough money around to meet the demand. I mean, they're actually buying the ETFs as well, which surprised people, right? They weren't even buying the underlying. Well, they were buying the underlying bonds, but you know, it was the it was the you know whether whether they were buying the ETFs because they felt that was the most efficient way of doing it, or whether the they were that was a specific area of the market they were trying to fix. I don't know actually. I think it's both. I mean, the yeah. the discounts to NAV on some of those corporate bond yeah, ETFs massive. were massive. Um, yeah. yeah, I think they were trying to do both. Let me ask you a question that you can answer with a short answer, Kevin, or at least try to. <laughs> try to. <laughs> are we are we currently in a carry regime? Yes or no? You know, I think we're transitioning. I think we still are in the carry regime, but we may very well be moving kind of in the final phases of it. A lot of carry trades haven't been that profitable in the last decade or so. The currency carry trade not that profitable. Even volatility selling in the S and P five hundred hasn't been profitable, depending on how you uh, set it up, in the last um, five years or so. And, you know, we do say that the the end of the carry regime will probably come through some form of inflation, which we're starting to see. So I think we could be in the early phases of maybe transitioning to, you know, out of the, out of the carry regime. You know, you think about in the past, 2008, 2020, what has the macro environment looked like when there was a big central bank intervention, typically low inflation. Now, if we had a market crisis and you've got inflation already at 7 or 8% and the Fed intervenes, then all of a sudden it doesn't become crazy at all to see inflation expectations really becoming unhinged, right? Because it's one thing to pump a ton of liquidity, um, print a lot of money in a world where inflation's zero you do that in a world where inflation's seven or eight percent and maybe you really do push yourself into a, a completely different world different regime now i'm not saying that's gonna you know that that's gonna necessarily happen but i i don't think it's out of the question by any stretch yeah i mean one of the things we we talk about quite a bit is that the fact that um central banks especially over the last 15 years you know ostensibly central banks are there to kind of help you know the, the, the man on the street or the woman on the street but of course you know the generally their uh, interventions are you know since 2008 have mostly been helping you know wall street you know the the financial economy rather than the real economy so i, I guess that's an example of that dilemma that the the tools the central banks have and the objectives they have even actually even without going forward like right now you know as a central bank there are clearly areas of the real economy that are still in a pretty bad state and yet ostensibly inflation's here our tool the tools we've been using to help the real economy we now need to reverse in a way that will probably reduce asset prices probably reduce inflation but could do untold macroeconomic damage so but but i'm getting off topic let me try and steer that as back to carry so i guess in a similar vein um you know what's the the kind of mechanism or transmission mechanisms by which carry which we've talked about really as this kind of something that happens in the financial markets most people on the street aren't going out and doing carry trades like there aren't there aren't kind of housewives in iowa doing straddles on the german german bund like Niels. what are the transmission mechanisms by which carry can change the economy and potentially damage it and cause problems if for example we have you know one of these sawtooth down movements in carry, which it sounds like you, you, you're kind of seeing happening now. I think the main mechanisms through the S and P 500, which we say has kind of become the center for the global carry trade, right? So if the the volatility of the S and P 500 is a carry trade, which it is, right, behaves in that sawtooth return pattern, escalator up, elevator down, 
It basically means the S&P 500 follows that same pattern. Let me um, stop you there, Kevin, because I can see the direction you're going in. And it's, right. it's not, I've obviously asked the question wrongly. So, so that's kind of a pure wealth effect, which is, you know, potentially important because households do have stocks in their balance sheets. But, um, you know, in your book, you actually talk in, in more detail about the creation of money within the banking system and how that's related to carry. So maybe I should have <laughs> been clearer in saying that that's the question I want, I want answered. So, um, yeah. So, okay. Um, I, was going to say, yeah, that we claim that the flow of causality is from the S&P 500 to the real economy, as opposed to what we're typically taught, which is that the stock market reflects what's going on in the economy. We think the economy reflects what's going on in the stock market. And I would argue that's more than just a, a wealth effect, because it triggers central bank intervention. It triggers, you know, exactly what you just talked about, um, the creation of money, um, and the the impact on on inflation, so I, I would argue that you know the the S and P five hundred is the global carry trade when it has drawdowns when it has this negative skew. There's the wealth effect, also forcing kind of the hand of the central bank, leading it to you know intervene and create you know more liquidity and potentially more possibility for inflation down the road. So that's kind of how we see the carry trade flowing into the the real economy. Okay. And what about sort of extending that model to cross-border flows? So what, what effect does the carry trade have in terms of cross-border flows, both pure money flows, but also in terms of inv investment? Yeah, it's, it's uh, kind of fascinating because, you know, we've talked about the currency carry trade in very trader terms, right? Because we're all traders. But increasingly, we see this kind of carry trade operating at much longer horizons. So you get, you know, Chinese firms issuing dollar debt and then converting that to RMB. And in, and in some cases, just lending on the RMB. But, it, but in a more macro sense, you get firms issuing, you know, low interest rate dollar debt, converting that to their local currency, and then using that to, you know, invest in projects that earn local currency cash flows, right? So, the acceptance, the willingness to accept that currency risk, that volatility risk, allows for a whole range of projects in higher interest rate countries to get done where they wouldn't have got done if they had to be financed at higher local interest rates. So that's kind of the quote unquote good part about carry in the sense that it's creating, while the carry regime is expanding, it's creating more growth, more money flowing to you know, uh, emerging economies, more cross-border flows. Um, but then it introduces that exchange rate, that volatility risk into that cross-border flow mechanism, which makes it more fragile. So, you know, when we get these carry spikes or sorry, volatility spikes, then you get those flows can reverse quite quickly and you can get contraction in growth outside the, the US or outside low interest rate currencies um, very quickly. So volatility in emerging market currencies, that's one of the indicators that we said in the book could point us toward, you know, are we moving out of a carry regime? If we start seeing kind of extreme volatility in emerging currencies, which you could argue, <laughs> for certainly in the case of Turkey, we have now Russia. So I think that's another indicator that the, the stability of the currency regime is kind of reducing quite a bit these days. So I think I think we are in a kind of a transition phase from that point of view. But yeah, the carry regime does have a big impact on cross-border uh, cross flows, for sure. I mean, one question I was going to ask in a bit, but I'll ask now if that's okay with you, Niels. Sure. Um, you've given me one example of when the carry trade is a good thing. You know, it's building power plants and dams perhaps overseas that otherwise wouldn't get built can you can you give me any any other examples or are you just so down on the whole thing that that's the only one you can think of well you know the example that i think is most easy for a lot of people to understand but again it it might end up being kind of a negative is um there's all big growth in cross-border mortgages in Europe, right? And when the Swiss agreed to peg the Swiss franc against the the euro, there was a lot of people who took out mortgages in Swiss francs and used that to buy houses in Hungary and Poland. And um, a lot of people could buy houses who couldn't afford to buy houses if they had to pay local interest rates. Unfortunately, the Swiss changed their mind 
and the currency appreciated by 25% overnight. And so you had a whole range of people who no longer could afford to yeah, pay back their mortgage. So I suppose in the end, that ended up being you know, not a good thing because they, they then had to be you know, kind of bailed out or they had to default. So I suppose in the end, I'm suspicious of the, quote, good side of the carry trade because I suspect that the full risk of you know, exchange rates or volatility isn't embedded in the calculations of the people who are taking out the low interest rate loans and using them to build power plants. Maybe they are. And certainly some people are sophisticated enough to do that, but I suspect in the end um, that risk isn't fully fully embedded into into the projects. So you don't take the kind of Greenspan-esque view of 20-odd years ago, which is that derivatives are good because they allow risk to be transferred between people who don't want the risk to people who do want the risk. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's plenty of that that happens, but I think, um, you know, what we're talking about is a world that's moved on dramatically since then. And um, so I think, you know, selling options is a form of conditional leverage. Like you're saying, I'm going to use my balance sheet um, to, you know, in certain conditions, you know, if the put finishes in the money, then, you know, as a seller of the option, I have to be prepared to use my balance sheet to make good on that. So there's just a whole bunch of contingent liabilities out there in the system uh, related to derivatives that, that we really don't have a handle on. And I, I just can't believe all those contingent liabilities are kind of fully <laughs> fully funded or that, that won't result in risks emerging that, that haven't been you know properly priced. So yeah, I guess I'm a bit of a skeptic on the Greenspan, I, the Greenspan view of the world. I wanted to pick up on 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 the topic that you just discussed here um, between the two of you. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that there are a lot of forces out there who really uh, cheers for carry, not least central banks uh, in their action. But also, if we go back and we look at, um, and I don't know exactly when we can pinpoint the beginning of it, but. But clearly guidance from central banks and narrative and conditioning of investors uh, have become, I think, more and more clear that that's taking place and it kind of underpins the whole carry world. And and of course, carry in itself is something that I think humans can relate to because it's this thing about you can make money by doing nothing, right? What could be better than that? And because because actually I'm, I'm very worried of what could happen next because of all of this, because of the actions that's been taken to, quote-unquote, stabilize uh, markets. The narrative that we've been told, and I think some people who maybe haven't been in the market as long as we have, uh, have only seen this kind of, you know, fed put and 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 buy the dip and, and, and all of that stuff. And then on top of that, you can add, you know, crypto and 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 all of that stuff um so what i'd like to hear from you is if we think that the carry regime is starting to lose its grip and i don't know if there's been other periods in historically you may know this kevin but there's other periods where it's been definitely a carry decade or two and then something else comes but i'm interested in your view as to what comes after a carry regime what does that regime look like um yeah i'd love to hear both of you what you think so i think the central contradiction of the carry regime is that central banks appear to be all powerful when in fact their grip on the markets is slipping away so in the short term, when they intervene, they stabilize markets, buy the dip works, more people do buy the dip, more people do carry trades. But that's just requiring bigger and bigger and bigger role for the central bank. And when we have a crash where the central bank isn't able to stabilize volatility, let's say we have a world where we've got 7% inflation, the market crashes central banks intervene they pump a lot of liquidity and there's and markets continue to go down then you have a really dangerous situation where you've created a huge amount of potential inflation you haven't stabilized the markets and i think that's very 
possible will happen in the, in the next crash. So we've got a world where everyone's going in thinking that central banks are all powerful, but in fact they've created the, the you know the the tinder for a fire that they wouldn't be that they won't be able to put out. So had they actually been less interventionist, they might have retained their influence. But I think they're, they've now set up a situation where, you know, I think about the equity market, right? Since 2020, what's happened to credit spreads and what's happened to the VIX? Credit spreads, relative to their history, are very, very low. And that makes sense because the Fed has said, hey, the credit markets are now under our protective umbrella. Whereas the VIX... The, the the you know the measure of equity risk has not fallen back in the way it typically does after a crisis which suggests to me that you know the market's worried that equities are not under that protective umbrella so i i think in the next crash that is going to be tested right um the, the credit markets are going to be expect to be supported and then if the equity markets aren't um, it leaves them in a politically very dangerous situation because you're, it's like, hey, how come you've bailed everyone else out but not you know, the, the person who's put money in their 401k? So I think the next stage is whether or not the Fed will make good on that explicit promise to bail out the equity markets. And if they don't, then you really get an eruption of volatility combined with higher inflation. So I think that's the next stage. Um, so I think an, a non-carry regime world is going to involve um, much higher and sustained higher inflation and a loss of credibility of a central bank, which ultimately might mean kind of rethinking the role of a central bank. So before I hear from Rob, um, so just just because maybe I don't know financial history as, as well as you do, Kevin, but would you say that there has been periods like this where you could classified as a carry regime and it's come to an end or would you say historically it's probably more like high or low inflationary period that kind of describes this because maybe we didn't think in the carry terms back in the 70s or back in the 40s or whenever we last had some quote-unquote crashes that were took a while to uh, to overcome well I, it, when you were saying your first your question initially, I, there was a point I wanted to make, which is that carry. It, you know, I'm talking about it in very negative terms, and I should be careful because some amount of carry is absolutely critical and and socially good, right? Banks do carry trades. They, you know, they're they're levered positions that provide liquidity, um, and we we need that. Insurance companies selling insurance. It's also a form of carry trades, and that makes everyone better off if a well-capitalized insurance company sells. Insurance allows us to transfer risks, et cetera, and even you know, derivatives to some extent can serve that purpose. So a certain amount of carry trading is good. It's when it becomes too big uh, that it creates the fragility that we're talking about. So if we look through the history, our view is that We really started the carry regime either in 1987 or 1984 with the introduction of S&P 500 futures, and it accelerated in 1998. If we look back before then, we didn't have the integration of global markets. We didn't have all the you know financial. We didn't have derivatives. It was much harder to do carry trades. It's more limited just to banks. Um, So I, I don't think we've seen the kind of carry regime in the past that that we're experiencing now. I don't think it's in the data kind of before the 80s. Right, and and that actually makes it even more dangerous in my opinion because most people will not have seen this. Like most people who now manage large sums of money have never experienced um, what it's like to manage money in an inflationary period, right? So so it kind of ties in together. Rob, what are your thoughts, Rob, on this? I know we have to kind of slightly start to think about winding down. Uh, we've already kept Kevin more than an hour, but... Um, so I recently reread the book by, about a biography of Jesse Livermore, who, of course, as you know, was a stock trader in the early part of the 20th, 20th century. And, and I immediately thought 1929. Um, because you know, going into 1929, um, the, the the amount of leverage that, that people could get on stocks was even higher than today. I mean, you could you could go out and buy stocks at like 20 times leverage. It's absolutely crazy. Um, and the the, the the central bank 
um, you know, did definitely did not intervene after that. And in fact, arguably, the US central bank, you know, prolonged the depression because they, they were very much believers in, you know, quote, unquote, sound money. So they were they were not interested. So worst case scenario is that we we are looking at 1930s. Um, against that, a couple of hopefully bright spots. One is that governments stop looking to central banks to do all the work that fiscal policy ought to be doing as well. I think that's a big problem. I think, you know, governments have have sort of allowed the central banks to be the the people who are always bailing them out, which means they don't have to do unpopular things with with taxes and so on. So so maybe the balance between monetary and fiscal policy will become better. You know, whether there'll be time to kind of sort that out if we get a a kind of crash, I I don't know. But uh, that's what I would hope would happen. Uh, You know, the we shouldn't just be relying relying on the on the Fed. The, the second thing, really briefly, is I, I do wonder if this is more of a US story than a European story because the number of stocks in household balance sheets I think is higher in the US. So, for example, in the UK, a lot a lot more pension plans are more heavily weighted towards government bonds. Say, for example, um, you know, stock ownership is 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 lo- generally lower in most European countries than in the US. So. Obviously, what happens in the US affects the rest of us anyway, but but I, I do wonder whether that transmission mechanism is potentially more of a problem in the US than it is in, in this country. Um, I think in this country, um, the, the the link between, um, you know, for, so for example, the UK and Denmark have some of the highest levels of, of mortgage, household mortgages um, than, than any other country. Um, so, so in those countries, what the central bank does in terms of the transmission mechanism on mortgage rates is is potentially more of an issue. But anyway, there you go. That's my brief answer to your, to your question, Niels. Yeah. Any any comments to to Rob's thought there, Kevin? Before I give you my last question, <laughs> I was going to say one thing earlier, and he when he mentioned what the central bank is trying to do with their intervention in terms of supporting the man on the street, I think that's absolutely right, and I kind of call it trickle-down insurance, right? It's like they're trying to ensure that people don't lose their jobs, uh, the living standards are maintained, and the only tools they have to do it are through the financial markets, which is you know, in mo- multiple steps removed um, from what they en- end up doing. So I think, and this is, I think circles back to what Rob said, a better system would be to say, what are we trying to ensure, and let's ensure it, and then let the financial markets kind of do their thing and to kind of step back from, um, you know, from the Fed having to be the market maker of last resort. And if we decide, actually, no, we need a market maker of last resort because, you know, we have an asset-based economy, so we need someone to support markets, then maybe the Fed or central bank should start trying to charge a fair price for that support. You know, banks have deposit insurance. They have to pay... Um, a premium to a deposit insurance fund, you could argue they don't pay enough, but that set aside, that mechanism, that principle is in place. Like they are, they they understand they're getting insured and they're paying for that insurance. Well, what about, you know, if the Fed is playing the role of market maker of last resort, they're insuring liquidity, then financial market participants ought to pay for that. And you could say, well, that's going to mean less liquidity. And I would say, yeah, that will mean less liquidity, but it just means it's more fairly priced. We're, it's, you know, we're subsidizing liquidity. So the central bank subsidizing liquidity, and um, therefore there's going to be people are going to rely on it more because it's it's cheaper than it should be. So maybe we we can move to a world where we ensure what we what we care about as a society directly. Don't rely on the central bank to do it, and then what the central bank does, have it charge a proper price for it. Interesting, interesting. Um, and actually also I think that if you go back in history, you'll probably find that, you know, we go through these periods where we have strong central banks and weak politicians and then it reverses and suddenly it's the central banks that's the weak hand and maybe we just haven't seen that for a while and, and perhaps that's coming. Um, final question, Kevin, uh, is there going to be a sequel? Let me propose a title, The Fall of Carry. Is that something that you're working on? <laughs> It is something that I I would like to work on, and Tim and I and Jamie and I have talked about it. So I'm, I'm hoping to spend the you know, real really the next uh, few months, and that my class at Berkeley wraps up in a couple of weeks to you know kind of put together an outline for it. And we we have talked about that perhaps as the the fall of Carrie being the uh, the sequel. So I'm I'm hopeful that uh, that that'll work out. <laughs> 
Well, I'm not going to claim copyright on that, so you can you can have it, Kevin. Don't worry. <laughs> I will, there'll be an acknowledgement for sure. Oh yeah, no, of course, I'm sure. <laughs> so, but excellent. I think we're going to slowly wrap up uh, a fascinating conversation, Kevin. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your thoughts and insights. It's been incredibly interesting to learn about this whole rise of Carrie and, and what it really means. And as I said before, it's a must-read book. And I think I told you this as well, Kevin, that uh, I, I release usually once a year my ultimate guide to the best investment books of uh, of all time. And definitely this will be in there the next issue. Not that it means a lot, but there we are. Um, <laughs> any final thoughts you want to leave the audience with, uh, Kevin? I, you know, I just, I wanted to say thanks to both you guys, you know, Rob um, had contacted me when the book came out and um, we had some good conversations and I've, I've listened to your podcast and I think, I think it's excellent. So I, I really appreciate you having me on and, and asking questions and, and being polite with my long winded answers. So yeah, no, I, I think I'll just, uh, I'll leave it at that and uh, I wish you all, all the best and um, you know, I wish you just the right amount of volatility in your portfolio. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. That's always good to have. So, um, you know, to all of you listening today, I hope you are able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us a comment to let us know what you want us to bring up in terms of topics on the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in the world of finance and investing. From Rob and me, Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources you could find on the website. And not least, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.